This morning, I want to talk to you about failure to recognize. And everybody in this room probably has one point in their life failed to recognize something or someone. Uh, You can fail to recognize the importance of something or someone. You can fail to recognize the need for something or someone. You can fail to recognize the value and the beauty of something or someone. All the while that you have that thing or someone right in front of you, interacting with that someone or something, and that yet we can fail to recognize its worth. There's always a cost, as you know, associated with the failure to recognize something. There's a material cost, perhaps maybe financially, uh, having to do with a car or a house. Uh, um, I've experienced that, the failure to recognize that when you get a new puppy, that the cost of taking that dog to the vet can be more expensive than taking your child to the ER. And I was forewarned not to take it to the vet, but I failed to heed a good friend's warning. Uh, emotional cost, anxiety, depression, anger can sit in when we fail to recognize something and then there's a cost associated with that. On the morning of January 12, 2007, in an entrance to a busy Washington, D.C. subway, a young man walked into the subway with a violin case. Well, picture in your mind, if you've ever been to a subway station, all the noise associated with that. You've got hordes of people walking to and fro. They're busy. They are preoccupied with where they're going. Uh, you see people with phones right here and a coffee cup right here, people talking out loud, the sound of footsteps, the, the sound of the PA system announcing the arrival or departure of, of subway trains. So this young man walks in with a violin case, unassumingly dressed. He's got a pair of jeans, a T-shirt, and he's wearing a baseball cap. And so he opens up this violin case and he leaves it set in front of him, opened up as an invitation for those walking by to perhaps put some money in, appreciating or recognizing his gift. So he begins to play. He takes out this old violin. He begins to play. And he plays for approximately 45 minutes. And during this 45 minutes of of playing this violin, he plays six beautiful pieces of music, two of which were by Bach. And he plays them all flawlessly. Now, during this time... Over a 1,000 people passed by him, busy, preoccupied with what they have going on. 27 people, however, throw a little bit of money into his violin case as they walked by, which totaled $32.17. So you do the math, how much they appreciated, 27, 32. Seven people stopped for a brief moment just to listen, and and they walked off. And then that morning, though, out of the approximately 1,097 people who walked by and heard and listened but just were preoccupied, only one, only one person recognized who this young man was. The man that morning in the D.C. subway was a man by the name of Josh Bell. Not the Josh Bell who plays baseball for the Pirates, but Josh Bell, who is a world-renowned violinist. The night before, he had played in a sold-out Boston Symphony Hall. 
The old violin that he played was a 1713 Stradivarius, if you know anything about violins, which cost him over $3 million. But only one person recognized who he was. This morning, we're going to look at a young man, one man in particular, who failed to recognize who Jesus was and Jesus' requirements for entrance into heaven. You know, the Bible has many stories about people who failed to recognize or refused to recognize who Jesus was. We know Herod refused to recognize that Jesus was the king of the Jews, and he sought to kill him. We know the Pharisees also refused to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. That's why they hated him, and they sought to kill him. Then we also know that one of his 12, Judas Iscariot, refused to recognize who Jesus was and turned him over to be killed. Our text this morning comes from Mark chapter 10, and very familiar story, and it's commonly referred to as the rich young ruler. And this is a uh, composite title. What I mean by composite title is that the title of this comes from the descriptors of this young man from the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark and Luke refer to this rich, this man as a rich man. Only Matthew states that he was young, and Luke's the only one that states that he was a ruler. Uh, biblical scholars believe that this man would have been a ruler of the synagogue, uh, possibly an inherited position passed down from family to family. He was very wealthy because the text tells us that he was very wealthy. He had probably been raised in the Scripture. Like the Apostle Paul, he had reached the pinnacle of his game, of his religious and his spiritual aptitude. He was there. Now, keep in mind that this is an actual story. This is not a parable like Jesus used so many times in the Gospels to teach. This was an actual one-on-one encounter with the Son of God. This man that we're going to read about this morning, he was close enough to Jesus to tell what color eyes he had. He was close enough to Jesus to see the sweat on his brow. He was so close to Jesus that he was breathing the same air that Jesus was breathing. And this morning, as we open up this text, we want to see, and I want to bring out four facts that this rich young ruler failed to recognize about Jesus and salvation that was costly and why we need to heed, even if you say, well, I'm a Christian this morning. Well, the gospel continues on in our lives as Christians. And so there's things that we need to take heed this morning so that we're aware of God's requirements for entrance into heaven and not our own. If you open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 this morning, we're going to read verses 13 through 22. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 22. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. 
And as he was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray this morning as we look into this text, God, that you'll remove me and you'll speak to me and through me. So that this morning, God, as we come into this and we're bystanders in this one-on-one interaction with this sinful man and the Son of God, we can see things that we need to be aware of. And I pray, Heavenly Father God, if there's anybody in the room this morning that does not know you, as our personal Savior. Perhaps they're in the same spot as this rich young ruler and and seeking an answer to eternal life, that today would be their day of salvation. I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit would work through the preaching of your word. We ask these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Now, this text could be be misunderstood that Jesus was cold and, and indignant to this young man who has a very important question. This has been the most important question on the hearts of men and women since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. What's going to happen to me after I die? And there's a lot of answers to that question out there. But in verse 15, okay, we're going to see something that opens our eyes up to this passage. But what I want to talk about real quickly here is this. Instead of looking at this as, which what it is not, it is not Jesus being indignant or cold to this young man. Actually, this text factually shows the compassion and the love that Jesus Christ has for sinners. In verse 15, Jesus is sitting the table for all those who wish to inherit eternal life. In verse 15, he says this, He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We see Jesus is saying what is one of the requirements is helpless dependence. Just like a child. A child on their own can't make it. They need mom and dad to to take care of them, to feed them, to dress them, to protect them. And then in verse 17, as Mark begins this narrative of this one-on-one encounter, there's something we need to take very particular notice of is Jesus' attitude and all this, which helps us to understand as we read through the text, Christ's love and His compassion for lost sinners. Verse 17 begins this way, and as He was sitting out on His journey. So the question then is, who is going on a journey. Well, we know that Jesus 
is headed on a journey. But where is he going? Is he just going to another town to share the gospel of the kingdom? Is he going to feed the multitude with bread and fishes? No. Jesus' journey that he's on to now is he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. He's on his way to suffer and die for the sins of the world. And we see that he is not preoccupied with his mission. He's proactive in his love towards sinful people. How many times have you been in a hurry to go somewhere, even leaving church on Sunday morning, and you've got to get out because you're preoccupied with what you've got going on, and sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so comes up to talk to you, and you go, oh, no, not now. Yeah, we're all guilty of that, are we not? And so we put up the facade like we're listening to them, but we're not. In our minds, we're actually going, okay, in this quick, in this quick. I have a roast in the oven, or I've got to work on something when I get home, or I'm, I'm going hiking or whatever. Jesus, now think about this. Jesus, who is carrying on his shoulders at this point in time, what's fixing to happen to him for me and for you and for you. He takes time to bless little children. He takes the time to converse, have a one-on-one interaction with a man that he knows exactly what's going on in his heart. John 3, John tells us that Jesus didn't need to be told what was in man because he already knew what was in the heart of man. So because of Jesus' great compassion and love for sinners such as myself and you, he takes time out of what's fixing to happen to him to express his love. You know, he also knew at this time that one would betray him. And I'm talking about that group really close to him. One would deny him and all would flee from him. This is on Jesus' mind. Say, well, Pete... How do you know that? Well, in verses 32 through 34, Jesus says this. And this is right after this interaction with the children and this young man. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This shows us that Jesus, and as you read through the gospel, we see that Jesus displayed his love to the lost while he was living. He demonstrated his love to the lost while he was dying, and he confirmed his love through his resurrection. Now, before we look at these four fatal things that this young man failed to recognize. Let's look at the man himself because we may find some similarities between ourselves and him. The first thing that we see is that he showed a sense of urgency. Mark says in verse 17 that he ran up to Jesus. Now, back during this time, there's a culture. Rich people did not run. They did not move fast. And that's why it's so significant in the, in the story of the prodigal son that the rich father runs down the road as he sees his son afar off. So this guy had a sense of urgency about what he wanted to ask. Perhaps he felt like a man that was running out of time. Perhaps somebody 
close to him had passed away. Nonetheless, what he had previously thought about his eternity is now changed and something has challenged that thought. Because remember, this guy grew up religiously. So he is at a point in his life where he has this burning question and it's with urgency that he is seeking the answer. The second thing we see that he was very sincere in his approach. Mark says that when he ran up, he knelt before Jesus, showing a sign of respect. It was another thing during the custom of that day that a ruler, a rich person, would rarely ever bow in front of a rabbi or a teacher. But this guy does this. He's very sincere in his approach. He had a good raisin, is what I would say where I'm from. Okay? And when he, when he comes up and he asks Jesus this question, when he kneels and he runs, this is not a trick question like the Pharisees so often would do to try to trip Jesus up. This guy was very, very, very sincere. The third thing we see is that he was respectful. He asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In all appearances, this guy looks like the model role model of a guy who's been raised in church. He is respectful. He's polite. Probably couldn't find a better guy in all of the surrounding area. But what we'll see is, though, despite all his good attention, his respect, his, uh, his good raising, he failed to recognize four things regarding Jesus and salvation that we need to really be sure that we have a grasp on this morning. So let's look at these things. The first fact that this young man failed to recognize was about Jesus. He failed to recognize the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was God Himself. Now, his failure to recognize or his refusal to recognize who Jesus was was not having to do with any kind of visual because he recognized who Jesus was, Jesus as a man, because the text tells us he ran up and knelt before Jesus. He didn't come up to the disciples and say, hey, are you Jesus? Are you Jesus? Well, I know you're not Jesus. Uh, Who is Jesus? Point me to Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. Perhaps he had seen Jesus teach. I'm sure he had heard all the rumors about who Jesus was and what he was doing. So he comes up to Jesus, knowing who Jesus is, and he asks Jesus his question. His question is, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You would think that this guy might know because he was part of the church. He was part of the established religion. But yet, something inside him is just not clicking. He's not sure, so he wants to find out. But... How did he look at Jesus? Well, the use of the word good teacher gives away what this guy thought about teacher, about Jesus. The word in the Greek, agathon, is referring to uh, the good that is naturally good, the good that, is, uh, that you can uh, say that God is. He looked at Jesus probably as a guru who had mastered the secret of spiritual perfection, and he wanted that for himself. Or he looked at Jesus and regarded Jesus 
simply as one who had excelled in attaining goodness. He knew about Jesus. He knew where to find Jesus, but he didn't believe who Jesus was. He did not believe what Jesus said about himself. And what did Jesus say about himself? In John 10, 30, he said, I and my Father are one. He claimed to be God himself. That's why the Pharisees wanted to kill him so bad. John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. What Jesus said when he said that was like, look, I'm the gatekeeper of heaven. You don't enter in unless it's through me. It's not through a good teacher. It's not through someone who can do good things. You know, the world looks at Jesus as a good teacher, a teacher of morality, someone to emulate because they don't understand. They have failed to recognize. Some religions actually look at Jesus as just a good teacher. When Jesus came out of the water when he was baptized, what did God say about Jesus? Remember that? God said, this is my beloved son who I'm well pleased. Jesus attested that he was the son of God, that he was God. God attested that he was God. And guess what? As you read through the Gospels, even the demons professed that Jesus was the son of God. So before Jesus gives him an answer to this burning question... He challenges this man's idea of what good really is. And that's actually a good thing to define because our world defines good totally different than how Jesus defines what goodness is. So Jesus responds back to him with a question. He says, why do you call me good? There is no one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is not denying his deity here, as some people would have you believe. There are some religions that would say, oh, this is where Jesus is saying he's just a man and he is not fully God and fully man. That's not, Jesus is not saying that. Jesus is not saying that I'm not God. Jesus is not saying that, hey, I'm just a man like you are. He's not saying that. What he is doing, he is trying to get this guy to understand the word that he's using. He was basically saying to the man, you know what, buddy, if you knew your use of the word good, you would know that I am the Son of God. You would know that I am God. Remember the conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well? And he asked her for some water. And he said, if you knew the gift of God and you knew who asked you to give him water, you would ask him and he would give you eternal life, living water. So this man totally failed or he refused to recognize that Jesus was the Son of God. The second fact that he failed to recognize was a fact about himself. And if you fail to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God, you will always fail to recognize an important fact about yourself is that he was a sinner. He failed to recognize that None of his good works, none of his repertoire with his religious uh, accolades was going to be good enough to get him into heaven. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Being a rich man, he was probably used to getting things done. He was a get-or-done sort of guy. 
So when he was questioned, he was probably going, hey, look, I've got everything I need for my time on earth. Jesus, tell me what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? I will check that box off as well. You may know people like that. I know people like that. They're all about trying to do as much good work as they can because they believe that's the boxes they need to check off to get to heaven. And if they can obtain enough goodness by the good things they do, then they'll make it to heaven. Jesus' answers, when he answers the man's question, at first when you read it, you go like, Jesus, don't you know that the way is through you? Why didn't you say, believe on me? He said that to other people. When they said, what, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus said, believe on the one whom God has sent. But Jesus does not say, believe on me. So why didn't Jesus say, believe on me? It goes all the way back to what we said at the beginning of this, that Jesus knew this man's heart. And everything that the gospel does, everything that Jesus does, all the words that Jesus spoke, what he did back then, is always directed to the heart of man. So Jesus is trying to get to this man's heart. When he says, you know the commandments... Jesus was not talking about the keeping of the law like the Pharisees proclaimed and and loved about themselves. Jesus was trying to get this guy to see his heart condition. So he lists these commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. These commandments that Jesus listed were the second table of the commandments. And these were commandments having to do with human-to-human relationship. Notice Jesus doesn't refer to the commandments in the first part of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that talks about man's responsibility toward God. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart. Have no other gods before me. So Jesus is talking to this guy about things, humanly speaking, this guy could accomplish. At this point, he is thinking, whew, Man, I'm good to go. Everything that I thought about being good, the teacher is confirming. We see this in verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Notice now he starts off calling Jesus a good teacher. Now that when Jesus says, You know the commandments and list them, he says, I've done those. He drops the good off the teacher and just calls Jesus teacher because now he is equated all the good works that he's accomplished since his youth, I'm just as good as the teacher. You know, a a person who, who thinks that they're morally good has no need for a Savior. That's where he was at. I'm good enough because Jesus said, if I keep these, I can go to heaven. But like I said earlier, these are, these are commandments that humanly, morally speaking, can be kept. I know people who have died who have never committed adultery, never committed murder, never, uh, as far as I know, bared false witness against somebody. All these things are humanly possible. But remember what Jesus said, okay? Jesus said this, and that's pertaining to keeping the law at the surface level. But Jesus said, you have heard from old that you shall not commit adultery. But I say, if you look upon a woman with lust in her heart, you've committed adultery already. Then he said the same thing about murder. If you have anger in your heart towards your brother, you've committed murder. So Jesus' view of keeping those commandments human to human are totally different 
than what this guy is thinking because his heart is not where it needs to be. So this man failed to recognize that his heart was undone and that he was a sinner. All his good, not good enough. The third fact that this man failed to recognize was to me one of the most important things because it's the, it's the, uh, it's the fulcrum of this whole text. It's the fulcrum of the gospel. And what he failed to, re- to recognize was Christ's love for him. After this man's response, hey, I've, I've kept all these things since my youth. It's easy to see that this man reveled in his moral ability rather than relying on the love of Christ to save him and change him. Yet, Mark tells us that Jesus looked on him right after he said this arrogant statement about being good. Really, it wasn't arrogant. It was just he was ignorant of the fact that Jesus looked on him and he loved him. Now, that begs the question, what is the love of Christ? And this is like a two-pronged attack attack of the gospel. Because for a non-believer, what is the love of Christ? For a believer, what is the love of Christ? How does the love of Christ affect both the believer and the unbeliever? As Christians, if you're a believer this morning, I think we really need to be shaken and awoken to what the love of Christ really is because sometimes we don't live our lives dictated by the love of Christ. The love of Christ can only be understood if it's been experienced. A lost person can't understand the love of Christ until the love of Christ starts working in that man, that woman's heart, and starts helping them to understand because a carnal mind does not understand the things of God, we are told. And I was thinking, what is the best way to explain or describe the love of Christ? I've read a lot of good books by a lot of godly men who have been dead and buried for a long time. But what I found was in the Scripture, a man who experienced the love of Christ, how he wrote about it, and that's the Apostle Paul. So if you would, open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5. And this morning, if you've experienced the love of Christ... This will resonate with you. It will resonate in your soul. If you're not a believer this morning, this also will have an effect on your heart. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, this is a guy who was in the same position as this rich young ruler. He believed his goodness that he was attaining, God would be pleased with. But you remember on the road to Damascus... When Jesus Christ got a hold of Saul's heart, it struck him to the core. From that point on, he understood what the love of Christ really was. And he wrote about it. And as you read through all the letters that Paul wrote, the love of Christ is heavy in all of his writings. So let's see what Paul writes about that. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand 
and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here it is. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, in that while we were yet were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the love of Christ is that Christ left His home in heaven, knowing how wicked and vile undeserving we are, came in the form of a man, still God, still had His deity. He suffered. And Jesus, remember in verse 32, 34, we just talked about it, Mark 10, He told His disciples what was going to happen to Him. He was going to be flogged, spit on, ridiculed, despised. Knowing what we were like, He still chose to come and suffer and die on the cross for our sin. That's the love of Christ. That's the gospel. And then not only did he die, but praise God, he was resurrected. So the love of Christ is something even as Christians, we need to stop and say, wow, how am I living out the love of Christ in my life? Do y'all really understand what the love of Christ is? Stop. Let's, let's park it there just for a second. Sinners, vile, wicked, even as we sit here today, Christ knew that, yet He still chose to die. He's on the way to Jerusalem. He stops, takes time to bless children. He stops and talks to a sinful man that He knows is going to walk away from Him. But Mark said, yet He loved Him. This man failed to recognize the awesome love of Christ. You know, Paul also wrote about the love of Christ in 1 Corinthians 13. If you read that, we refer to that as the love chapter. Get home this afternoon, read that. That'll help you understand even more so. And that's not just talking about human love. We use that when we do wedding, you know, premarital counseling. But Paul is talking about, too, the love of Christ. We can have all these things like faith and gifts. But if we don't have the love of Christ, Paul says, we're as, we have nothing Because what we do is going to be in vain because when people see us do stuff, they need to see the love of Christ in us. Something that this man, even though he was face-to-face with Jesus, failed to recognize Christ's love. Then Jesus said this. After After he looked upon him and loved him, he said, you lack one thing. And as you read that, that could be kind of confusing because Jesus lists off four things. How can that be one thing and four things. So he says, you lack these four things. But what he was talking about was 
The one thing you lack is a heart that is repentant. He didn't think he was a sinner, so why repent? Why do I need a Savior if I'm, if I'm not sinful? And he failed to recognize that great love of Christ. You see, that tends to be glossed over a lot of times in the gospel. And even in our lives as Christians, we, we kind of gloss over that because we're so preoccupied with everything else we have going on in our lives. We, we fail to have compassion. We fail to have love. We fail to be long-suffering to other people, to sinners in our lives, to our spouses, to our children. And then the fourth fact that this young man failed to recognize while was his need for repentance. You know, he was so morally good in his mind. He had done all these things. He didn't see the need to repent. Some people live their lives that way. They say, well, I live my life in such a way that I don't need to repent. Well, that's a lie of the devil. The Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. So if there's none righteous, we all need to repent. Even as Christians, we need to repent of our sins that we commit on a daily basis. This young man wanted heaven. He was very sincere. He was, he was seeking after it. Verse 22, though, that he was disheartened by the same. You know, Jesus talked about this in Luke, that if you want to be my disciple, you know, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. There's a cost to following Jesus. This young man made an honest effort to seek a moral prescription for his eternity. But what did Jesus give him? Jesus actually gave him a spiritual diagnosis. But he also gave him the cure. But he didn't take it. And when this young man finished this one-on-one encounter with Jesus, like I said earlier... He could tell the color of Jesus' eyes. He could see his hair. He could see the sweat on his brow. He could smell the dust off his clothes. He walked away. Now, he didn't walk away empty-handed because he walked away with everything that he had brought. He walked away with all his earthly possessions, his, his sin, his desires, But he had nothing eternal when he walked away. So why do people not come to Jesus when they have that one-on-one interaction? Why is it that they fail or they refuse to recognize who Jesus is and God's requirements, Jesus' requirements for possessing eternal life? J.C. Ryle wrote this, and this is in regard to the love of Jesus, and also why this happens. But the heart of Jesus is a wide heart. He has abundance of pity, compassion, and tender concern, even for those who are following sin in the world. He who wept over unbelieving Jerusalem is still the same. He would still gather into his bosom the ignorant and self-righteous, the faithless and unrepentant, if they were only willing to be gathered. We may boldly tell the chief of sinners that Christ loves him. Salvation is ready for the worst of men if they will only come to Christ. If men are lost, it is not because Jesus does not love them and is not ready to save. His own solemn words unravel the mystery. 
Men love darkness rather than light. And you will not come unto me that you might have life. This young man was not willing to give up to gain Christ. His temporary enjoyment was more important to him than his eternal existence. So now where does that leave us this morning? Hopefully it doesn't leave you in the same place that it left the rich young ruler. And I believe that this text applies to both the lost and the saved this morning. Perhaps you're today and you've come seeking. Perhaps you're urgently wanting to know how to enter heaven. You're not really sure about your eternity. Maybe something's happened in your life to where it shocked you to your core. And you've heard everything that's floating around that you've that you got to be good or you you got to give money or whatever, and your, your mind is confused, but your heart is heavy because you want to know for sure because your eternity in heaven or hell depends on the answer. And this morning, you've come face to face. Christian, you too. You've come face to face with Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, who God, it pleased Him to crush Him and put him on a cross to satisfy God's wrath. Well, first of all, like the rich young ruler, you, you must, well, unlike the rich young ruler, you must recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. Secondly, recognize that you're a sinner. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And recognize the love of Christ. A love so incredible that despite your wickedness, and your ungodliness, Christ died for you. And recognize your need for repentance. Don't walk away this morning knowing that you were this close to Jesus, yet you would refuse to repent and accept His great love for you. And for us who claim the name of Christ, here's a question that hit me pretty hard this week as I studied this. Do people around me recognize who Jesus is by the way that I live? Can they see the love of Christ in how I interact with them, that I take time out for them? Paul said in Corinthians that the love of Christ compels us to do things for others and not just ourselves. So as we close this morning, just a challenge. Christian, are you living your life in such a way that people can recognize that Jesus is the Lord of your life, not just a good teacher who you follow? And if you're here this morning, you've never been born again. Have you come to the point where you recognize through God's word this morning that he is the son of God, that you are a sinner? And that he loves you so much that he died for you. And that you need to repent and turn from your ways.